and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. And today we're going to be talking about the Crow Warrior, Craftsperson and Bate Oshtish. We have a few content warnings before we start this episode. I'm going to use some outdated language for Indigenous people and genders in quotes. Uh, There'll be discussions of war, including injuries and death in war, and also discussions of the US mistreatment of Indigenous peoples in the 19th and 20th centuries, as well as a couple of mentions of domestic abuse. So if that's anything that you don't want to hear, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other content. I'd just like to start with a disclaimer that I am not Crow, I'm not Indigenous, and I'm not Two-Spirit. So I've done my best talking about this culture and this gender, but I've been researching this for a few weeks, and obviously there's a lot that I won't know. So wherever possible, I've tried to rely on sources from Crow people, or failing that sources written by Indigenous Americans more broadly, or by scholars whose work is actively endorsed by those communities. But if you are Crow or Indigenous or Two-Spirit and I've messed something up, please get in touch and let me know and I'll post a correction. I also wanted to say before I start that I read a lot of Indigenous American people's thoughts on what terminology they prefer with regard to American Indian or Native American or Indigenous or anything like that. And there's no consensus on what terms we should use. Different people like and dislike different terms and I couldn't find anything that everyone agreed was okay. So when I'm talking about all the peoples who lived in North America before European settlement, I've chosen to use the term Indigenous Americans. While it's not the most common term, it was the least contentious one I could find. But wherever possible, I'll use the name of the specific nation that I'm talking about. The last thing I want to say before we get into the episode proper is that there have never been consistent pronouns used in English for Oshtish. Crow people who knew Oshtish during their life will generally use she, her, or alternate between she, her, and he, him. It's worth noting that some Crow people who have learned English as a second language will use inconsistent pronouns, so alternating between she, her, and he, him for cis people as well, reflecting the fact that Crow doesn't have gendered pronouns. Oh, cool. Yeah. I understand now why the pronouns were so complicated for you. During writing the script, I went back and forth like four times of like going and changing every pronoun and then being like, no, I might go and change those again. (laughs) (laughs) It was terrible. It was a bad time. (laughs) So Crow woman Lillian Bullshows, who knew Oshtish during her childhood, uses both he, him, and she, her, and when she's explaining how Crow people talk about Oshtish, she says, quote, they don't call him him or her, they just say a person. So in talking about Oshtish, I've chosen to use they, them pronouns to reflect this use of non-gendered pronouns, which Oshtish would have used and heard in most of their day-to-day life among the Crow people, as well as to reflect the nature of their Bate gender as being outside the male-female binary. Within quotes, I retained the pronouns that the speaker used at the time. I'm sorry if that's a little bit confusing sometimes, but that's what I've done. We'll manage. I think we can handle that. I think people in general need to get more used to that kind of thing. Yeah. Regarding historical trans people. Inconsistent pronouns are not as confusing as people insist on making them out to be. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. I mainly meant just genuinely syntactically confusing within a sentence, if I put a quote within a sentence, but I think we'll handle it. But yeah, I did change my notes from they, them, to she, her, to they, them, to she, her several times. So I'll be interested to hear your thoughts at the end of this on the decision I've made. But never him? I never used he, him, but I did read scholars who did use he, him. Okay. So at the very start, yeah, I had some notes using he, him because I knew nothing and I was just writing down what the scholars said. All right. I do remember when the last time we talked about this, about how it was going, I was like, just use they. And you were like, no, she. And I was like, okay. And now we're here. So I'm very curious. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, so when I said that, I hadn't come across Lillian Bullshows yet, who is a crow person who actively said we didn't use him or her. Okay. So, yeah, that was what changed my mind. But when crow people do fall down on one side or the other, uh-huh. they will fall down on she rather than he. Okay. Which is why I was using she. Oshtish was born in 1854, and they were assigned male at birth. They are a part of the Crow or Apsaroga nation. I'm going to use the word Crow mostly because I'm not sure I'm saying their native name right, and I don't want to mess it up 50 times. Yeah, that's fair. Among the nations around the Crow, those people refer to Crow as Crow, literally the bird in their own languages. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a pretty acceptable choice. The Crow are an indigenous nation in the area around Wyoming, Montana, and North Dakota. So the inland northwest of the USA. (laughs) I was like, ah, yes. (laughs) Wyoming. (laughs) At the time that Oshchish was born, they were living a semi-nomadic lifestyle on the Great Plains, supporting themselves largely through hunting buffalo. Is that different to what they were doing before that? Or is that just different to what they've been doing since then? Ah, both. Okay. So their lifestyle was pretty largely affected by the introduction of horses. Ah, in okay. the 1700s, and that made it a lot easier to hunt buffalo. So, so they did more buffalo hunting after that? So that's a factor. I'm not sure about the details of crow history, but yeah, like their lifestyle had changed over the past few hundred years. Okay, cool. Oshtish wasn't named Oshtish at birth, but crow people can be given several names throughout their lives to commemorate various events. We'll talk about the event where Oshtish was given the name Oshtish later on. Oshtish is the only name we know that they had. Okay. So that's the name we're going to use. Yep. Um... To the best of my understanding, crow names aren't gendered, and I found no mention of Barté changing their names when they express their gender identity as being Barté rather than male. Oshchish is more correctly pronounced something like Ochich, which is a shortened form of the phrase Ochkabdarpesh, which means finds them and kills them. Pretty bad. so metal, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a hardcore name. Um, it's a hell of a thing to call someone when you just want them to come and, like, eat the dinner. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I assume that's why they shortened it. Are those, like, two words? Like, Oshtish? Or is that just, like, just like a phonetic shortening? I think it's a phonetic shortening. So the SH ending is just an ending used when talking about people in third person. Okay. And so Ochi is the first syllable of Ochi. Ochi cupped up Oh, I see. Okay. So right. it's really just a short shortening, a phonetic shortening. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm using Oshtish because that's what they're most commonly called now, and I want people to be able to find this podcast if they want information on Oshtish. Oshtish said of their gender that since birth they were, quote, inclined to be a woman, never a man. And also that, quote, My father and mother did not like it. They used to whip me, take away my girls' clothes and put boys' clothes on me, but I threw them away and got girls' clothes and dolls to play with. Despite their parents' reactions, Oshtish's gender was a known and accepted one amongst the crow, and as I've mentioned, it's called Bate, also sometimes written or said as Bade, Bode, or Bote. The most recent crow dictionary uses Bate, so that's what we're using. Okay. And we will see several examples later on of crow people actively supporting Oshtish in their gender identity and expression. However, the anthropologist S.C. Sims, who wrote in around 1900, notes that he had been told by crow people that even if parents wanted their child to take on male rather than Barté roles, the child would invariably resist and the family would have to adjust accordingly, which suggests that Osh Tish's experience of their parents wanting them to be male rather than be Barté was one that did occur among crow people. Okay. I don't know why. 
I've got no more information on that particular fact. <laughs> I mean, it's not even that weird that parents would have preferences among the kind of gender binary. Like, preference for male children is a thing. Yeah. So for a bit more background on Bate and on the terminology that we'll be using, Bate is a specifically crow term, but genders outside the male-female binary have existed and been documented in over 155 of the around 400 nations that occupied North America before Europe, before European settlement. The term generally used today, which now covers both gender and sexuality outside Western norms for Indigenous people, is two-spirit. That's come out of a recent effort over the last 40 years to revive these Indigenous identities. What sexualities are we, like, kind of sexuality experiences are we talking about here? When you say that can cover both gender and sexuality outside of, like, Western. So I'm including there gay Indigenous people might use two-spirit. Oh, okay, okay. And things like that. So when I say outside of Western norms, I mean, like, cis and heteronormative yeah. Western norms. Cool. Not identities that we as Westerners understand within our culture. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. So San Carlos Apache person Curtis Harris explains use of two-spirit, saying, We started to use this term because we didn't feel comfortable in many cases in simply defining ourselves by the colonizers' culture. Some Indigenous people do reject the term two-spirit, seeing it as homogenizing a wide variety of unique identities across many nations, as well as being linked with the romanticization of Indigenous understandings of gender by non-Indigenous Americans. But it is the commonly, or the most commonly accepted term, and so where appropriate i'm going to use it okay i wish we could find a two-spirit person to come into an episode with us i wish we could but i don't know if there would be a single two-spirit person in australia <laughs> there if may be we have the internet today it's true and we do have skype but if you're a two-spirit person in australia like call us <laughs> do please we'd love to talk to you we'll make you cake <laughs> we yeah have- we can't pay you but we can't make any cake <laughs> yeah <laughs> More specifically than two-spirit, the term third gender is used when talking about Indigenous genders beyond the male-female binary. Sometimes this use is restricted to people assigned male at birth, but fulfilling more female social roles, and fourth gender is used for people assigned female at birth, but fulfilling more male social roles. So I am going to use those terms in that way occasionally, just for clarity, because two-spirit is a broader term, and third gender is specifically what Oshtish is. I just feel a little bit weird that we've made, like, like there's like a number ranking here. Yeah, which gender is first and which is second? I mean, I think, I we, think we know the answer to that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Not to get a little bit political on this queer podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. I mean, I think what happened is they came up with third gender first for genders beyond the binary. And then people were like, this isn't, this isn't all the one thing. We need another label. Hmm. Yeah. And then fourth gender. And there is also fifth gender. I'm not sure what exactly that's used for, but within some cultures, they do use the term fifth gender. Okay. So it was more like the first two genders came a draw. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, they did, in like yeah. terms of when they were invented. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. When they were like labeled. Yeah, I don't know. Barte like Oshtish are generally assigned male at birth, but recognise when they show a lack of interest in traditionally male activities and an interest or skill in traditionally female activities. I'm looking forward to hearing about the event that got Oshtish the name, finds them and kills them. <laughs> Thank you so much. Because I would very much like interpret find them and kill them as a traditionally male activity, or is it not for crow people? Uh, less so than we would think of it, but yeah, it's a largely traditionally male activity. Okay, we'll talk about it. 
Oh, wait and see. Yeah. Coming up. So the first trader, Edwin T. Denig, who lived among and around Crow people for over 20 years in the early mid 19th century, says that this recognizing of people who had been assigned male at birth of actually being Bate usually happens around the age of 12 or 14. Sometimes visions are also associated with somebody being recognized as a Bate, although it seems that these visions serve usually as confirmation that a child is Bate rather than a reason for people to decide they're Bate. Yeah. Tish explained to U.S. Lieutenant Hugh L. Scott that none of the Bate who they had known had been directed by a spirit or a vision to become Bate, and they said, quote, they were born that way. That's so interesting to me that Tish said that. I was so happy when I realized we had quotes from Tish. Like, yeah, I did not really expect good. this at all. Yeah. But yeah, um, Lieutenant Hugh L. Scott interviewed Tish about their gender. How good. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. And like, other people have quoted Tish as well, but... Yeah. Lieutenant Hugh Scott was actively like, I am a Westerner who doesn't understand your gender. What's going on? And you were like, me too. (laughs) Yeah. Same, Hugh. (laughs) Oshtish recalled knowing eight Bate throughout their life. So how big a community are we talking about here anyway? I'm not entirely clear because among the crow around the time Oshtish was young, I think there were about 10,000 crow. Mm Mm-hmm. But crow is an overarching term that includes several smaller groups. So there were River Crow and I can't remember the other two. I take it Oshtish is River Crow then? No, I don't know what Oshtish is. I couldn't actually find that fact. Oh, okay. okay. So I'm not sure when Oshtish knew eight Bate, if Oshtish would have known all the Bate among all the crow, or if the eight Bate Oshtish knew are just within Oshtish's small community. Okay. So I don't have a good kind of percentage of crow that are Bate number. But I assume that knowing these people is restricted amongst like the smaller or wider crow community as we're using the crow-specific yeah. term, Bate. Yeah. Okay. Within Oshtish's community, the Bate generally pitched their lodges together and lived as a distinct social group. Uh, when I say lodges, picture what we know as a teepee. That's the Lakota word. The crow word is Ashe. Okay. This community of Bate referred to each other as sisters. During their life, Oshtish became recognized as the leader of this group, as well as becoming an important medicine person, so a healer and a spiritual leader among the crew. There's this definite thing in trans history where trans people are always the, like, spiritual leaders in a community, and I want to know why. You're right. I've sort of seen this before. Across, like, many cultures, I mean. Yeah, so among the crow, and I don't have the quote that I had on this, but among the crow, Bate are often associated with having an ability to mediate with spirits. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also linked to the idea that because Bate are neither male nor female, they're more able to understand a wider variety of experiences. I've seen this in regard to, like, Oh, I can't remember, like, Roman um, priestesses who were assigned male at birth, where it's like, oh, because they were neither male nor female, then they could, like, play with the line between life and death. And I was like, <laughs> why don't I get that? <laughs> yeah, similar things are said about Bate, yeah. Maybe you just haven't been playing with the line between life and I'm death. I'm trying. So, this is why I had a goth phase uh. as a, as a <laughs> Yeah, um, Oshtish in, I'm not sure at what point in their life, but in their youth, Oshtish had a vision of being taken by spirits and communicating with these spirits. And this is what led them to become a medicine person. So maybe you're just waiting on your vision. 
I have to say, if I got a spiritual vision that told me what career to have, I don't think the spirits were like, hey, Ashtish, this is your job now. I think Ashtish was like, oh, so I've communicated with spirits. I'm like, it makes sense that I now have this spiritual connection. Okay, it was more like Ashtish was like, cool, I have like... A, a skill here. Yeah. Not like, uh, I was visited by the career counselling spirit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ashtish's other skill that we know of is that they were renowned for their construction of Ashi. We know this partly because they built the Ashe of Iron Bull, who was a Crow chief around the 1870s and 1880s. The ethnographer Edward S. Curtis, who wrote about the Crow people in the early 1900s, says it was common among the Crow to say that Iron Bull's lodge is like the Lodge of the Sun. So it was a very, very impressive lodge. Lieutenant Scott stayed in Iron Bull's lodge in 1877, and he described it as the largest and finest lodge I have ever seen. So Ashtish built great houses. Yes. Okay. Yes. Good. Why is it so good? Well, it's very big, for one thing. So Curtis writes that usually people will only use up to 18 buffalo hides to make an ashe, and to use any more is thought to offend the spirits. But Oshtish had a vision of an ashe made of 20 hides, and so because they'd had this vision, they knew oh, it would be okay, and they made Iron Bull's ashe ultimately out of 25 hides. So it's just very large and impressive, basically. That's an extra five hides that <laughs> showed you, but that's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how that went down with the spirits, but I think it was okay. The high tanning and sewing that are necessary to construct Ashe are skills practiced by both women and Bate. And women and Bate share many other tasks within their community, including butchering buffalo, feeding, cooking, and raising children. Bate also generally participate in women's rather than men's song and dance, but not always, and we'll talk about that a bit more later on. So in some cases, Bate have their own unique roles. Okay. Okay. But are they ever in the men's things? Yes. Or just never? They are. Uh, I do have one reference. Okay. So, yes. I don't know much about it, though. Yeah. There are, however, differences in what's expected of each gender. So, for example, women are more involved with the care of infants, while Bate devote more of their time to craft because they're not spending their time raising babies. Okay. Um, because of this, Bate are often seen as being more skilled at things like making Ashe, and they themselves often live in some of the best Ashe in the community. And through their skills, they were often very prosperous, and they were known for their charity to other members of the community. In 1876, when Oshtush is about 22, the Lakota and Northern Cheyenne, collectively known as the Sioux, were involved with what's known as the Great Sioux War of 1876 against the United States. When you say Sioux... Is yep. it that word that I've spent my whole life saying Sioux about? Yeah, S-I-O-U-X, Sioux. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Cool. Like Sioux, Sioux. It's French spelling, so. Yeah, no, that's all right. I, I was just oh, making sure. Oh, the French are responsible for this. Yeah. <laughs> I was just making sure. It's a French spelling of the final syllable of a word that I think these people did call themselves. Okay. Always used by someone to describe these people. Well, okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So at this time, Lakota and Cheyenne and Crow people are kind of on the frontier of U.S. Yeah. advancement. Okay. And the Lakota and Cheyenne are at war with the U.S. Oh, no. The Lakota and Cheyenne have been enemies of the Crow for many years, and they're often fighting over hunting grounds and so forth. Yeah. Oshtish was actually briefly taken prisoner by a Lakota war party in their youth. Oh, wow. Something <laughs> I know nothing more about. Oh, my God. <laughs> When you say in their youth, they're like they're twenty two now. How youth were they? I do not know. <laughs> oh wow, okay. That's all I know. I lived such a sheltered life. 
But they're fine. They're fine. They came back. Yeah. I'm not even sure how they came back, if the Lakota gave them back or if they escaped, but they okay. came back. And you don't know, like, how long for or... No. <laughs> I'm not satisfied. I'm sorry. I know nothing. Um, Lillian Bullshots, who I mentioned before, uh-huh. just casually said this. Yeah, she told a series of stories about Oshchish, and one of them was, you know, in their youth, Oshchish was taken prisoner by a Lakota war party, but they came back home. Okay. And I was like, Lillian! <laughs> <laughs> so, you're probably not going to know this, but, like... How common was the taking of prisoners? Were prisoners treated relatively well? I know that the Crow treated prisoners quite well and that I know of one woman, she's known as Woman Chief, who was taken prisoner by the Crow and later became a chief. Okay. Hence her name among them. Yeah. So she obviously was treated quite well. So you could, like, assimilate into the other group. Yeah, but I don't know how Oshchish would have been treated by the Lakota or... Okay. I will. (laughs) I feel like if you're in, like, an ongoing war, it would be weird for one party to treat the prisoners well and the other not to. Yeah. I don't don't know whether Woman Chief was Lakota. I can't remember where Woman Chief was originally from. Okay. That's right. Go on. All right. Well, I'll just remain unsatisfied, I suppose. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's not your fault. So, yeah, the Crow and the Lakota were longtime enemies. On the other hand, Crow generally maintained good relations with the United States because they saw this as the best way to maintain some control over their lands. Based on these pre-existing relations, when the US General Crook asked the Crow to assist him in his fight against the Lakota and Cheyenne, the Crow people contributed about 175 warriors to his cause. And this included Oshtish, as well as a woman called the Other Magpie. So women warriors were fairly normal in this context, or was the Other Magpie a weird one? It was unusual but not unheard of for a woman to be a warrior. So there are some other references, like I mentioned, Woman Chief was a warrior. Yeah. And there are a few other references to female warriors, but it is noted by Crow people who knew her that it was unusual. Okay. Okay. But it could happen. Okay. Crow medicine woman Pretty Shield, who knew Oshchish and the other magpie, described the other magpie as a, quote, wild one who had no man of her own. She was both bad and brave. And she was pretty. Wow. She sounds great. <laughs> I love the other magpie. I love her. There are also references to other Bate warriors existing as well as Oshish. We know that the other magpie joined this war party because her brother had been killed by the Lakota and she was seeking revenge. We have no idea what Oshish's motivation for this was. Okay. On the morning of the 17th of June, Crook's forces, along with Crow and also Shoshone allies, stopped to rest by the Rosebud Creek. Crook sat down to play cards with his officers when the Lakota and Cheyenne attacked with almost a thousand warriors. So Crook also has a force of about a thousand people. Okay. There's a big number of warriors. Yeah. Yeah. It's it more is. warriors than I have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would lose this war. I would lose this war too. Yeah. So luckily for Crook, Crow and Shoshone scouts had been able to sound the alarm and delay the approach of the Lakota and Cheyenne, allowing US forces to stop playing cards and to gather to defend themselves. A US participant in the battle reports if it had not been for the crows, the Sioux would have killed half our command before the soldiers were in position to meet the attack. Pretty Shield talks about Oshchish's role in the battle, and I'm going to read quite a long quote here, partly because it's also talking about Oshchish's gender, and I think it's quite interesting what Pretty Shield has to say. So Pretty Shield says, A crow woman fought with three stars, which is the name they use for crook, on the rosebud. Two of them did, for that matter. But one of them was neither a man nor a woman. She looked like a man, and yet she wore woman's clothing, and she had the heart of a woman. Besides, she did a woman's work. Her name was Finds Them and Kills Them. 
She was not a man, and yet not a woman. She was not as strong as a man, and yet she was wiser than a woman. That is indeed an interesting thing about gender. Yep. <laughs> I am interested that the like dichotomy with men and women here is the strong gender and the wise gender. Yeah. Like, yeah. our kind of setup is the strong wise gender and you guys, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that other gender. Yeah, um, women... Not talking about wisdom, but women in Crow society were quite powerful and able to do more things than Western women generally were at the time. So, for example, it was a woman who owned an ashe. Okay. okay. So the woman not only ran the household, but she owned the household. And she just, like, left Let the man, man in. there, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And things like that. So women were more powerful in society than Western women were. Okay. Okay. Pretty Shield also mentions that Osh Tish wore men's clothing into battle that day. Is this one of those possibly a practicality thing? No, Pretty Shield actually gives an interesting reason for this. Okay. So what she says is that if Osh Tish was killed, they didn't want the Lakota to find them in women's clothing and to think they were a man dressed as a woman. Ah, uh, okay. This is interesting because the Lakota also have a concept of a third gender similar to Bate, which is called Winkte. And Winkte were known to fight in wars and also to wear female clothing. Though I'm not okay. sure what dress they wore into battle. Okay. Lakota and Crow people even shared a word which described both Bate and Winkte in the plain sign language, which was the lingua franca amongst many, many people in North America at the time. Wait, what? Sign language? Yeah, plain sign language. So what? Yeah, it stretches from up in Canada to, like, literally down in Mexico. So I knew that there were sign languages, but I didn't know that they were, like, the lingua Common franca. tongue. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Across the Great Plains, the common language is plain sign language. I'm so happy. Yeah. That's so good. How it did is. this happen? Tell me more things that you probably don't know. I know that it was spoken... Uh, I just know some facts about how many people spoke it. That's so about 40 different... Spoken languages all shared plain sign language as their common language to talk to each other. I wonder how this happened. I don't know. Lieutenant Scott was an expert in it. He studied it. Hugh, okay. who we met before. Yes, I remember him. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know much about it, but it still exists. Imagine if that was oh, in good. fantasy novels. Imagine if common tongue was a sign language. Wow, if I could be bothered developing a fantasy universe, the places it would go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People, if you did have a like fantasy universe and you're like, yeah, the common tongue isn't English, it's a sign language, people would be like, that's absolute nonsense. That would never happen. Yeah. This is some SJW <laughs> yeah. stuff. Yeah. 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 No, it's real. Is it still around? Yeah. It is still around. Yeah, it was used within the specific nations as well to, in certain contexts, some storytelling and some ceremonies and stuff were done in plain sign language. Okay. So yeah, and it still exists today. I wish I knew more facts. So being deaf is just a chill, fun time. Yeah, being... This time. <laughs> I guess so, yeah, like everyone speaks sign language. Yeah. Uh, how convenient. Cool, <laughs> yes. <laughs> So um, in plain sign language, there is a word for third gender. Okay. And it's derived from the sign for half, followed by the sign for man, then the sign for woman. That makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Could, right. Is there any, like, are there resources on the internet of people showing you what that looks like? Um, I assume there are, because I did read verbal descriptions of what it looks like. Okay. So the sign for woman is apparently combing your hair. Okay. And the sign for man is an erect finger. <laughs> 
<laughs> I assume they used the word erect to imply erect penis there. That's what I read. An erect penis. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So yeah, you probably could find video of people showing you this. Do you know what the sign for half was? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I know. We'll look into it. Because <laughs> we were so close. We were so close, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the crow and the Lakota would have shared this word. Okay. And presumably Oshtish knew that Lakota Winkta existed. So I'm not yeah. really sure what's going on here. Yeah, um, okay. It may be that Winkta wore male clothing into battle. Okay. That's a possibility, but I really don't know. So what could happen if they found them and they were perceived as a man in women's clothing? Um, like, what are they afraid of happening here? I don't really know. Pretty Shield didn't really elaborate on what they thought would happen. I think they were just afraid of being misunderstood. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know what to go with this. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We're lacking some key data here, I think. But I thought yeah. it was interesting. Okay. I mean, yeah, I guess if the Lakota would have worn male clothes into battle regardless of gender, then mm. it could make sense. Yeah. They were like, well, I'll make myself like culturally intelligible in this setting and I will also wear male clothing into battle. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. So what are what are clothes like? <laughs> what are female clothes like? Like are they because um, you were saying that it's not a matter of practicality. So clothes are gen- we do have pictures of Oshtish wearing female clothes and in the context I've seen that's a long dress. Okay. But I understand that women also sometimes wore shorter dresses and leggings and men okay. also wore tunics and leggings and I'm okay. not clear yeah. on the difference between a short dress and a tunic, but I'm sure it was obvious at the time. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. in terms of mobility, maybe there's not too much difference between a short dress and a tunic. Yeah, I, and I guess not. Yeah. 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 And I'm not sure what somebody like the other magpie wore into battle. So Oshtish distinguished themselves during the battle and Pretty Shield tells one particular story in which a crow warrior called Bullsnake's horse was shot out from beneath him by a Lakota, and Bullsnake fell off the horse and fell to the ground. As you would. As you would. <laughs> and Oshtish raced up to him, got off their own horse, and stood over Bullsnake to protect him. To quote Pretty Shield, shooting at the Lakota as rapidly as she could load her gun and fire. And this saved Bullsnake's life. The other magpie was also there. She rode into battle on her black horse, wearing war paint and a stuffed woodpecker on her head. I love her so much. She sounds very fearsome. Yeah, she does. And while Oshtish was standing here protecting Bullsnake, the other magpie rode around the Lakota singing war songs and striking them with her coup stick. So a coup stick is a stick which you mark to measure acts of bravery in war, so you count coup on the stick, and one of those acts of bravery can include going up to the enemy and touching them with the stick and escaping unharmed. Pudishid also comments that the other magpie's medicine was strong enough that she was able to just ride up to the Lakota and wave her coup stick and they would retreat. I don't know how to translate medicine in this context, but, you know, obviously some power within her and her cue stick that can drive up enemies. I mean, what we've understood about the other magpie so far is that she's, like, a strong and fearsome person. If the other magpie rode up to me, I would ride away. Yeah, I would retreat. There's no question that any of us could take on the other magpie. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, the other magpie would take us all prisoner. That is true. Yeah, Pretty Shield also talks about Oshtish and the other magpie teaming up at other points in the battle to bring down Lakota warriors together. There should be a movie about them. I was going to say it's not a movie about this, and then I didn't, because I was like, even if there is, it's definitely offensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I doubt it features Oshtish. It could feature a woman in battle, but I doubt it features the other magpie complete with Woodpecker and Oshtish. The Woodpecker is so important. Yeah. 
How do you keep a woodpecker fixed to your head while fighting in a battle? Like a chin strap attached to its wings. <laughs> That's a very good strap. <laughs> well, you can keep a hat on your head in battle. Yeah, I guess if you picture more of a... I'm just thinking the weight of a woodpecker, like, you know... How big a woodpecker? I, yeah, very much pictured kind of like the woodpecker lying on your head with its wings. Oh, okay. oh that makes Going more down sense. like this. That makes and more then sense. you can have a yeah. strap to attach it onto your chin. I pictured it just sitting upright on your head. No, I pictured it like lying on your head. Um, there might be photos of other... I was going to say, maybe people from the Crow Nation still know how appropriately to wear a woodpecker on your head. Yeah, there might be photos of other Crow people wearing birds on their heads. I mean, was this a, like a common thing, or was this just know. a small person was like, you know what would be absolutely bore? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, it's through the Battle of the Rosebud where Osh Tish shot down many Lakota that they earned their name, finds them, and kills them. Okay. So now you know. True. After six hours, the Lakota and Cheyenne fought the U.S. Crow and Shoshone forces to a standstill, but eventually retreated when U.S. reinforcements arrived. And most of the Crow returned to their village the following day, they didn't continue to participate in the war. Pretty Shield described the return of Crow warriors to their village as, quote, one of the finest sights that I've ever seen, and added, I felt proud of the two women, even the wild one, so the other magpie, and there was great rejoicing. I thought it was interesting that she said even the wild one, so it seems that she saw the other magpies behaving more outside of social norms than Oshtish. Okay. I mean, Oshtish seems to be perceived as like, I mean, like you said in the sign, like half woman, half man. So I guess there might be more space for, for Oshtish to do something that's perceived as a more like male activity. Yeah, I think that's what's happening here. Yeah. I don't really know much about how much Bate fought in wars. I do know of a couple of other Bate that did mm. fight in wars, but it seems like it was a pretty acceptable and normal okay, activity yeah. for a Bate. Okay. There's a photo taken of Oshish the following year, so in 1877, when they were around 23. They're very well dressed, showing that they already had a high standing in their community, possibly elevated by their deeds at the Battle of the Rosebud. In this photo, Oshish is sitting beside a woman who was identified by the photographer as their wife. Oh. For the record, to give you an idea of how much the photographer knew, this photo is captioned Squaw Jim and his Squaw. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> And this is the only record we have of Oshtish having a wife. So I'm not... So like, nah. So like, nah. Okay. What I'm thinking here. I was actually like, oh, a wife, how nice. But but maybe it's a lie. A it's probably a lie. Uh, we're not sure anything about the identity of this woman. The scholar Will Roscoe speculates that the woman may be the other magpie, since she's the woman we know of most closely associated with Oshtish at this time in their life. But okay. we don't know. But like reasonably, Oshtish probably had a bunch of female friends or... Yeah. Partners yeah. or whatever, I or don't know. Or just happening happened to stand next to a woman one day when a photographer was there. Yeah. yeah. A photographer, a photographer even. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, these photographs taken by white photographers of Indigenous people are often very staged. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the photographer may have grabbed Oshtish and grabbed a woman and been like, sit together, okay, oh, look, this was a nice Indian married couple. Yeah. Like, we just don't know. Years later, Oshtish would tell Lieutenant Scott that they themselves had never married but that they knew other Bate who had, or who, to quote Scott, did everything women did. Okay, so would it have been more normal for them to have married a man? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So Bate generally marry and have sexual relationships with men. Okay. Do they ever have relationships with women? Not that I found any okay. record of. Okay, so wife thing more suspicious. Wife thing looking unlikely. So Dr. A.B. Holder 
uh, the U.S. position to the Crow in the 1880s, met Oshtish in 1889, and recorded that they had, quote, lived for two years as the female party to a marital partnership with a well-known Indian male. And Holder also notes that having relationships with men is the norm for Bate. And Oshtish told Holder that they had never had sex with a woman. So the wife thing is looking increasingly unlikely. Okay, so the wife thing is pretty, like, open and shut. Yeah, but there's potentially a husband here. Yeah, Holder describes him as a well-known Indian male, but I don't know who that was. Well, that's not a lot of information, is it? No. (laughs) (laughs) I hope they were very happy together. (laughs) For those two years. Yeah. Yeah, none of the other sources on Ashish mentioned them having a partner, so I don't know. Holder also adds, quote, He is, he referring to Ashish here, he is, like the female members of this tribe, ready to accommodate any male desiring his services. What? <laughs> so Crow, obviously, as a different culture, have different ideas about, you know, what sex is appropriate and when to what we do. And European anthropologists or doctors or whatever like Holder often fail to recognise Crow marriages and what Crow relationships were going on. Mm-hmm. So it may be that these services that Holder is talking about were taking place within relationships that he just didn't recognize or it may be that people were just more free about having sex than people like Holder were I don't really know but Holder's understanding was that Crow were just kind of sleeping with everyone I see and specifically that Barté were according to Holder and some other anthropologists um, performing oral sex on men I mean, it sounds likely that Barté performed oral sex on men sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I believe that could have happened. That seems very probable. He just makes it sound like anyone could go up to him and be like, so, like, now or? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He does. He does. And I'm not clear what the real norms surrounding that were. Yeah. Well, let's not trust the white doctor. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't trust He sounds Holder. confused. Holder seems usually pretty well-intentioned, but he doesn't know what yeah. he's talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think well-intentioned but doesn't know what they're talking about is, like, about as, like, good as white sources <laughs> from then are going to get. Yeah, I think so. sucks. It does yeah. suck. Talking about Barté marriages, other Crow people have told anthropologists more recently, so in the second half of the 20th century, that a man married to a Barté might be teased since Barté are seen as being very productive, as we've mentioned, and very good providers for their families. And so their husbands are seen as lazy and kind of wanting a partner who keeps their house and provides for them. So the deal there is that the Barté is seen as performing sort of two gender roles and the husband (laughs) who's got the Barté is like, great, I don't have to do the man thing or the woman thing. I'm going to have a nap. Yeah, that's kind of what's implied there. (laughs) Right, I see. All right, that was like not as bad a common as I feared it would be. Yeah. In terms of like a stereotype that could have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Like the stereotype that seems to exist in Crow culture about Barté is that they're just really good at everything. Like as neither a man nor a woman, they're good at both male and female tasks. I see. And Barté, I think I've mentioned, are seen as being better than women at a lot of traditionally female tasks like crafts. Is this... Going back to because they don't have to look after babies. I think so, yeah. It's just okay. that that's what they can do. It's just like they have to. the time to yeah. become amazing at things. Yeah, I think so. Okay. When A.B. Holder, the doctor, met Osh Tish, he paid Osh Tish to undergo a medical examination and he writes a description of them. So, to quote Osh Tish is, a splendidly formed fellow of prepossessing face, in perfect health, active in movement, and happy in disposition. He's five feet eight inches high. That's the same height as me. Well, there you go. You and I are the same height. <laughs> okay. 
I have you fearsome it. in battle? I I mean, I'm sure you could be. <laughs> like a woodpecker to add a few inches. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, he's five feet eight inches high, weighs 158 pounds, and has a frank, intelligent face. They obviously had a lot more muscle than me. Yeah, Oshchish is quite broad. Okay. I'll yeah. be intimidated if I time travel and meet them. You would. Please then do an interview where you ask them about many things, yeah. Yeah. including what happened when they were a prisoner of war as a youth. <laughs> <laughs> and why they wore men's clothing into battle. I'm obviously going to have to, like, learn. Plain sign language. Yeah. <laughs> Good. 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 And to end this quote, he is 33 years of age and has worn women's dress for 28 years. Okay. First things first, pay them to undergo a medical examination. Is that something that we should feel weird about or is this fine? Well, I thought about this a lot. And from reading Holder's writing, he seems very well-intentioned. And so he talks about, in a minute I was going to talk about, he um, also examines Oshchish's genitals. And he talks about how he kind of talked to Oshchish and like Oshchish was quite shy about this and they had a conversation about it. And Oshchish was like, look, don't like talk to my community about what my biology is. Okay. But I'll undergo this medical examination. Like, okay. I don't know if this was dubious, but Holder presents it in a way where he seems to be respecting Oshtish. Okay. And then is it just like, hey, I'm going to ask you to like, I don't know, do push ups or whatever. I should compensate you for your time. Yeah. In terms of paying them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It seems more like that. Obviously, we can't know for sure, but yeah. Yeah, that's very, like, it could be horribly exploitative or it could also be that thing where when you're at uni you go and do a psych experiment and they give you $20 and a snack. (laughs) Yeah, and Holder presents it more as the second one. But as I mentioned, Holder, in his examination, also examines Oshtish's genitals and he notes that Oshtish is quite shy about this and tells him that nobody has seen their genitals since they were a child, even women they've known for a long time. Okay. Would that have been unusual in their community? Like, did people... I don't know. in communal environments or anything like that? I'm not really sure. Okay. Uh, when I was writing this down, I was thinking about this from the perspective of, like, what partners they had in their life and stuff, so I didn't okay. think about things like communal bathing. Mm. So I don't know. Okay. Okay. But, like, maybe no husband? I mean... It, I guess. Maybe no husband they're having sex with? Yeah. Maybe no husband they're having certain types of sex with? Yeah. I think all I can say is maybe no husband they're having certain types of sex with. Yeah. Maybe they just only have sex in the dark. Maybe they do. I mean, that's a bit loophole but I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Around and following the Battle of the Rosebud, the 1870s and 1880s was a time of very rapid change for the Crow, with more and more white settlers arriving in the area. Following a series of treaties and both voluntary and compulsory sale of their land, Crow lands were diminished drastically in size, and Crow people ended up living on the Crow Reservation under the control of a U.S. agent who represented the U.S. government. Oshtish received an allotment of land on the reservation, and the 1880s census records show them living at the head of their Arche, along with her brother, niece, nephew, and others. So as the head of their Arche, they are, like, that's a woman's position, essentially. Yeah, that's yeah. a woman's position, and that means that Oshtish owns the Arche. Yeah. Presumably they also made it and it's beautiful, so that's fair. (laughs) Yeah, I think they probably did make it, yeah. And it is beautiful. And it would be beautiful. By 1891, Oshtish was living alone, except for an adopted three-year-old child, known as Brings Horses Well-Known. Interestingly, the 1891 census records Brings Horses Well-Known as a boy, but the 1895 census records them as a girl. I see. (laughs) 
it's likely that what's happened here is that Oshchish has adopted the child because they're like, well, you probably have a same gender identity. Maybe so. Or maybe it just happens that the child is a Bate and that Oshchish has adopted them. I don't know if those things are connected or not. But yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah, that they've adopted them in a like, I've got to feel like I have experience to give this child. Yeah, especially at this time as there's more European influence and Bate is becoming less acceptable and more persecuted as mm. an identity. Yeah, that's a possibility, yeah. Um, I don't know much about Brings Horses well known. They lived with Oshtish until at least 1904 when they would have been 16. Mm-hmm. But that's the last that I've found of them. Despite having very little violent conflict with the USA, US ideology didn't accommodate Crow culture, unsurprisingly, mm-hmm. and preached assimilation with US culture. So Crow parents were forced to send their children to government-run boarding schools, and at these schools native customs and languages were banned and obviously this includes the expression of Bate gender. How long did that go on for? So this would have started in about the 1880s, I think. Okay. And in the early 1900s, there was a day school set up on the reservation. Okay. And so kids were able to go to that, to that school and still live with their families. Okay. But is that just for the, the crow specifically? Like, did that go on more broadly for... I assume that continued for longer for other people. The Crow actively went out and sought someone to help them start a day school on their reservation. So, yeah, this probably continued for much longer for other people. I don't know. It did here. Yeah, I think it was probably quite similar. Yeah. So holder rights of a Crow Bate at one of these schools found dressing in female clothing in the late 1880s and reports that they were punished but that this kid eventually managed to escape from the school and live as a Bate elsewhere. Well, I'm glad they got out at least. Yeah. 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 And Mm. obviously the behaviour of Crow adults was policed in different ways but similarly policed. Yeah. Under US agent Briscoe in the 1890s, Oshtish, along with other Bate, was imprisoned, their hair was cut and they were forced to do manual labour and also to wear male clothing. Oh. <laughs> Colonists are bad. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Some might even say. Yeah. Oh. Uh, Crow historian Joe Madison Crow talks about this incident, and he describes Oshtish as the most respected Bate, and obviously the treatment of them and other Bate was considered untenable by the Crow. Joe Madison Crow says... The people were so upset with this that Chief Pretty Eagle came into Crow Agency and told Briscoe to leave the reservation. It was a tragedy trying to change them. Briscoe was crazy. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if it was directly as a result of this, but Briscoe did eventually leave. And Oshtish had quite a good relationship with several subsequent Crow agents, including an agent Reynolds, whose daughter Caroline remembers Oshtish in her memoirs as a regular visitor to their home who was pleasant and good-natured. Caroline's attitude to Oshtish's gender is also quite interesting. So when she first writes about Oshtish, she describes them as, quote, an unfortunate soul who was probably glad to get away from his native tribe and go visiting, assuming that Oshtish has been forcibly dressed in women's clothing by the crow because they failed in some way to meet crow standards of manliness. But Caroline does also comment that Oshtish is, quote, good-natured about this insult. So Caroline has just fundamentally misunderstood this situation. (laughs) She has, but interestingly, after her memoir goes to the publisher, the publisher has a note that they've written um, that says that Caroline continued her research after the publication of the memoir and concluded that no crow mother would force cross-dressing on their child, as she assumed had been forced on Artish, 
because she thinks that would be, quote, contrary to the free and easy life, end quote, of the crow. And she discovers that according to Ashtisha's friends, they dress as a woman because they want to. You had access to their friends and you didn't ask them immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't ask them before you sent the memoir to the publisher? I guess not. (laughs) Yeah. Still, I'm glad she figured that out. Yeah, I was quite impressed that Caroline figured that out. Good work, Caroline. So as I mentioned before when we were talking about schools, in 1902, the Crow invited Baptist minister Reverend William A. Petzold to come to the Crow Reservation to help found a day school, which would allow children to return to their families rather than spending all their time in government boarding schools. Mm-hmm. And Petzold formed close relationships with many Crow people, but he also denounced many aspects of their culture, including Bate. And he encouraged members of his congregation to stay away from Archtish and other Bate, Crow medicine man Thomas Yellowtail suggests that Petzold's continued condemnation of Oshtish is probably the reason why there were no Bate after Oshtish. So it's not clear exactly what Thomas Yellowtail means by the statement that there were no Bate after Oshtish. Mm-hmm. And he might have been specifically talking about there being no Bate fulfilling all their traditional ceremonial roles. Specifically, this includes felling the tree, which was used as the central pole in the Sundance Lodge in the religious ceremony known as the Sundance. The Sundance was banned in the 1880s and not revived until the 1940s. And when it was revived, it was revived in a form more based off Shoshone traditions, and there was no Bate role within the revived Sundance. Okay. When you talked before about, it was fairly early on, you talked about like Indigenous attempts, efforts to revive these traditional gender identities mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Is there any effort to put the Bate back in the Sundance. Or similar things, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, there are Crow people who identify as Bate now, since that revival I mentioned, which started in about the 80s. But I didn't come across anything about them being put back in the Sundance, so I'm not sure. Okay. I don't know. It's a good question. In 1914, Agent Evan W. Estep, I don't know if that's how you say his name, he arrived on the Crow Reservation. And Estep had Oshtish dragged into his office where he told them that they were a man and that they needed to stop acting as a woman. I can't just... I mean, I know people are like this apparently, but why is he so invested in what, like, other adults do with their time? Yeah, I've got no answer for why people are like this. People are just like this. So when this happened, Oshtish was obviously distraught. Uh, But luckily friends were aware of what was happening and they went and informed Chief Plenty Coup. Plenty Coup came to help Oshtish and found them crying outside Estep's office. And Plenty Coup went in and told Estep to back off or, quote, when I get out of this office, you're going to leave. Within two hours, you're fired. I love that he went and, like, fired the, like, (laughs) white agent that looks over them. Yeah. Can that just happen? No. No, he was just going to, like... He was like, no, I don't care, I'm fired. (laughs) All right, good. I'm so glad that they at least have a community that's like, this is not on. Yeah. 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 No, that's right. Their friends were, like, obviously looking out for them, too, in terms of, like, Carolyn as well. That they obviously had that conversation and cleared things up for her. That's true, yeah. Their friends obviously spoke to Carolyn and were like, you've got this wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if Carolyn sought out that conversation or if... They showed up and were like, we need to talk. (laughs) You published a memoir. (laughs) The memoir is bad. Yeah. Yeah. Plenty Koo also said to Estep, talking about Oshtish, in her youth, she didn't go for the men, so meaning the men's activities and men's ways. 
She dressed like a woman, and still she is dressed. I want it that way. She's kind to people, she's good-natured, she goes to dances and takes part in every activity. Mm. Obviously, they saw them as a very important part of the community, and they looked after them. How it should be. How it should be. So, does the white man go away? Does he get fired? He doesn't get fired, but apparently he and Plenty Coo came to, you know, some understanding, and a step relented, and Oshish was able to continue living as they wanted to. Oh, good. So Estep was frightened of Plenty Q. Correct. <laughs> yes. So when Lieutenant Scott visited the Crow in 1919, he found that Oshtish was still wearing women's clothes and still had a female hairstyle and presenting as a Bate would. He describes Oshtish's enviable position in their community, which he credits to their skills as a craftsperson. And Scott also says, She was most jolly, had a simple air of complete satisfaction with herself. Oh. That's good. Well, that's so nice. Yeah. When Scott visited them, Oshtish was recovering from blood poisoning, which they had What? This is not one of those things that just sort of happens and we don't get to hear about it. Yeah, we only hear about this because Scott turned up and found them being like, yeah, I thought I was going to die, but actually I got better. Yay. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) So they had blood poisoning. They had blood poisoning, but they, they thought they would die, but they didn't die. But it did mean that they had prepared what they would wear. For being dead. For being dead. I see. So they showed Scott the dress they had prepared. It's so they were like, hey, I thought I was going to die, but I didn't. And now I have this lovely dress. Do you want to see it? Yeah. And Scott's like, sure. <laughs> want to see what I was going to wear to my funeral, Lieutenant? <laughs> That's basically it. Yeah. So it, it's a woman's dress. It's a dark blue dress and it's ornamented with abalone shells. Sounds nice. And we have a photo of them oh. in the dress. Oh. Alive? Yes, yes, alive. Oh, okay. Alive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, Good. sorry. Good. I look forward to seeing this photo. In their later life, Osh Tish maintained a large network of friends among the Crow people and also among neighbouring nations. They gained a reputation as being the best poker player in the region. <laughs> <laughs> Lillian Bullshows remembers Osh Tish visiting her mother to cook and play cards, and that Osh Tish always brought apples, oranges, and other sweets to give to Lillian and her brother. And she also recalls that they were a very good cook and that they would often sing while baking. Their favourite songs were from the Beaver Dance, and Lillian notes that in this dance, which was a dance participated in by all genders, Osh Tish would sometimes wear men's clothing. Okay. Have we talked about anything that Osh Tish wasn't good at yet? No, no. Osh Tish is a very okay. suit. <laughs> Osh Tish is a very suit. <laughs> yeah. Osh Tish is great at everything. We're going to talk more about another thing Osh Tish is great at now. Okay, good. As well as traditional crow crafts which we already know that Oshtish is great at in 1926 they also won a ribbon at the yellowstone county fair for their hand sewn quilts that's like in line with previous talents we didn't know that yeah they had. like yeah. the talents are now in line with what we know about them. that's unsurprising and yeah. they also got prizes for their collection of roots berries and meats prepared and dried with traditional techniques cool. i like the yellowstone county fair was giving out a prize for this yeah i guess it was <laughs> Yeah. Could people enter this if they weren't indigenous? I do not know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is a slightly odd situation. Like, who runs that competition? Who judges it? White people? What is this? <laughs> I didn't Google the Yellowstone County Fair. I was just like, oh, they want some prizes. That's nice. Okay, okay. <laughs> so that was in 1926 that they won... This county fair. This county fair. Two years later, in 1928, they became quite sick and they spent much of that year in hospital and Lillian mentioned visiting them in hospital. 
and they died on January the 2nd, 1929, age 75. That's a reasonable human age to be Yeah, so a long and... that they attained it. Yeah, yes, a long and good life. So now we've got to the end of this story, I do want to quickly ask you, how do you feel about the choice of they, them pronouns? Because I thought about this a lot. I don't, like, I don't feel like they was a bad choice. I feel like she would have also been a defensible choice. Yeah, I think she would have also been a valid choice. Yeah. Yeah. I think most of the fact why it's difficult is because it's all in translation, basically. And it's in translation from a language that does not have the words she, him, and they. Yeah. yeah. In Oshish's own language, this was not... A discussion. Yeah. 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 This choice never had to happen. Um, but definitely not he. Yeah. the sources that <laughs> describes them like that. Yeah. One of my major sources I used for this was Will Roscoe. So Will Roscoe is a white scholar, but he has worked very closely with Indigenous people. And there is a preface at the start of his book of a gay Indigenous man Randy Burns, who is endorsing his work and saying that he was originally quite sceptical about this white man writing about mm. Indigenous genders, but he's come around to it and he thinks okay. that Roscoe okay. has done good work. But Roscoe did use he, him pronouns for Ashtish. Oh, okay. Okay, Roscoe. And the reason he explained that he did this was because he said Ashtish's biology, being assigned male at birth, was always a known fact to their community. Okay. And he justified this as a reason to use male pronouns, which but I don't... why does that trump literally everything else, I guess? I was like... going to say I don't follow this logic. No, I don't think it's very logical because I think, you know, as much as Roscoe tries to talk about, you know, gender and obviously how gender is separate to sex, he's kind of just gone back to the idea mm. that gender and sex are really the same in that Like, point. unless what he's mm. trying to argue is that Oshtish was just a man and everything that they did in their life in terms of their like social position within their community was just like normal for a man of that community which which it wasn't did yeah. argue that <laughs> no like no. i feel like everything else he said about Oshtish was yeah pretty well argued and well presented and this one choice just all right well i disagree yeah i disagree too. yeah i think it doesn't make much sense but that argument just didn't make any sense No, and that was the only argument I saw for using he, him pronouns, and otherwise he, him pronouns I generally found in the writings of older older people. Mm. Um, I think there is this thing where people write about any, like, gender-diverse people where they're like, so all of these reasons for using, like, pronouns other than those belonging to the gender they were assigned at birth. But, like, that's scary, so I'm going to do that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I feel like it's like there's a whole lot of reasons to use they and a whole lot of reasons to use she, and they've just kind of fallen back on. But we know they had a penis. So. But biologically speaking. Yeah, yeah, and it's not very valid at all. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. How does Roscoe talk about, like, non-Indigenous trans people? Does I don't he? think does he does. He ever? Because, like, if that's how he approaches Oshtish, how... Would he justify not approaching trans people that way, which is obviously a bad thing to do? And he when was that book like... from, or like book? It was a book. It was a book. Okay. Um, I can check. I yeah, check right here. Two thousand. Oh, that's like super recent. Yeah, I thought it was going to be from the seventies or something, <laughs> which no. was just kind of a bad time. It's a recent book. It's a recent book. All right. Well, I'd be curious to look into that and see what he thinks he's doing with his life. Yeah, it's a book. It's called Changing Ones and it's about 
a whole lot of different two-spirit people across a whole lot of different indigenous nations and there's just one chapter on Ashtish. Okay. So you can read it. Does he always take that approach to his pronoun choices of two-spirit people? I didn't read all the other chapters. Okay. Reasonable. <laughs> Reasonable, yeah. Um, I don't know. Does he have a like introduction where he lays out his methodology or is this was this specifically in regard to Oshtish? This specifically came up in the chapter on Oshtish. Okay. After Oshtish's death, it can be difficult to know what Barté existed in the following decades. And I've mentioned already the influence of men like Petzold and generally the US Western influence in suppressing those genders. So to the best of my knowledge, there are no records of Barté who reached puberty between the 1920s and the 1960s. Obviously, that doesn't mean they didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And looking beyond Crow on that topic of, you know, us not knowing what was going on, local historian Edith McLeod, who researched the Klamath two-spirit person White Cindy in the 1950s, discovered that while she could gather information from local Klamath people, non-Indigenous people who did know about White Cindy would refuse to speak about them. And Edith McLeod quotes them saying things like, I know, but it's not printable, or okay. I know, but I can't tell you. Okay. So given that non-Indigenous people's voices were and are privileged in mainstream history, conversations about third gender people were pretty effectively silenced for many decades. Well, that's rubbish. Yeah, that's rubbish. I agree. We should look into White Cindy sometime. Yeah. Yeah. How? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I guess we must road trip. I mean, I guess Edith McLeod... We can drive to America. Edith McLeod does mention that, like, she managed to talk to Indigenous people but not non-Indigenous people, so... Oh, maybe she gathered some information. I don't know. So today, among the Crow, there are people who identify as Barté, having learned about the identity from the elders. A Barté who was interviewed in the 80s recalls that as a child, they were punished by family members for playing with traditionally feminine toys and for dressing like a girl. But then they say, But my grandfather intervened and told me about the old days when people respected the Barté. After that, my uncle and mother laid off me. That's very um, good. Yeah. Yeah. So there was kind of a bit of a gap, a kind of the older people remembered remembered, and then it was suppressed and now yeah. it's coming back. But like not for long enough that it wasn't in living memory. And yeah. That's very mm. good. Yeah. Yeah. So it could have, could have screwed that up much worse than it already was. Yeah. 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 Barté today among Crow people, though, is often translated simply as homosexual or as gay. This might also possibly be that some Barté revert to these easily understood terms mm. of gay and homosexual rather than try to explain their identity to outsiders who aren't Crow and don't yeah. have this history. So a Barté in the 80s explained to an anthropologist that they usually dressed androgynously and presented that way while on their reservation, but they would put on more traditionally feminine clothing and present as a woman when going out into white towns so they drew less attention to themselves. Okay, okay. So obviously these people's identities are different in some way to Ostrich's identity, partly because everyone's identity is different and partly because the Crow culture has changed and adapted since European settlement. Mm. Um, But it's also worth noting that modern Western understandings of gender and sexuality have probably been influenced and informed by Indigenous American ones as well and that our culture also changes and adapts. And it doesn't mean that these Barté people aren't as validly Barté as Oshtish was. Yeah. On the topic of Western understandings of gender and sexuality being influenced by Indigenous American ones, Western authors that pioneered the way we talk about sexuality and gender today, or at least started that conversation, people like Carl Heinrich Ulrichs and Havelock Ellis, draw on ethnographic reports from North America to inform their own discussions about gender around the world. Ah, that is quite interesting. Yeah. 
they are a pretty like classic example you know like if anyone's yeah. like no trans people have always existed it's like three two one and two spirit people <laughs> yeah 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 exactly exactly yeah. as will wasco who we've talked about says and in this quote he uses the word burdash which is an older word for two-spirit person oh is that how you pronounce that yeah okay yeah <laughs> sure how do you spell it <laughs> oh my god france B-E-R-D-A-C-H-E. Because, like, I've heard this word spoken and I've never seen it written down. Oh, well, it's Burdash. Yeah, like, I've heard Burdash and I've never seen it written down. <laughs> Together we had a full understanding of this word, I reckon. <laughs> we did. <laughs> so, um, yeah, <laughs> anyway. Will Roscoe says, There's no pure native Burdash tradition and there is no pure Western category of homosexuality. After five centuries of contact, both refer to each other. So Burdash came to America from French settlers and it originally comes from a persian word which is used to refer to a captive or slave uh. of any gender and it came into french and was used in french to refer to the younger or passive partner in a male-male relationship from france and that french meaning of the word it came over to america and for a long time it was the widely used word and most often among anthropologists and ethnographers and those kinds of people for two-spirit people. Yeah, but it's a problematic word and we should not continue. Yeah, it's now been replaced by the word two-spirit and yeah, I don't think there are any indigenous people, maybe there are, but I don't it's... think so, who identify as Burdash. Okay, yeah. But that is the word that Roscoe uses. Mm-hmm. Roscoe? Sounds like a problem. <laughs> Roscoe sounds like a mixed scholarly bag. Yeah, Roscoe is a mixed scholarly bag. Yeah. That's an accurate summary of Roscoe. But yeah, I just wanted to end with that quote and that comment about modern day Bate to highlight that it's important to remember that Oshtisha's story and identity isn't the story of a lost cultural identity that no longer exists but it is part of the history of a living culture and living queer history. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. And you can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. You can find the rest of our podcasts on Podbean and iTunes. If you find us on iTunes, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave us a review. And Eli is about to read out some of those reviews that we've recently received now. Okay. So we have one review to read, Mm -hmm. and then we are out of reviews. Cool. So, yeah, please send us more. We'll read them out on this podcast, like, soon. Yeah. So the subject for this review is at Jivescroc, which I think is someone who follows us on Twitter, so I'm assuming they're making their identity known Uh, and they wrote great humor nice banter and cataloging queer history in a 21st century way thanks for being an electronic Herodotus (laughs) I love it which I liked and would put on a t-shirt if I was so inclined very good very good so thank you very much for taking the time to review us I also thought I would read out a comment that someone left on our Podbean Uh, so if you listen to us on Podbean or you know if you don't and you have the means to go to the Podbean website, you can comment on individual episodes, which might 
suit your purposes better if you just wanted to give us feedback on an individual episode without writing to us directly or something like that we encourage you to interact with us in as many ways as you like because we are very thirsty for that kind of direction (laughs) um so sports queen with a z uh, commented on the second part of our Pauli Murray episode and said, this episode was so, so, so good and juicy. <laughs> I absolutely love listening to these queer histories, but the long discussion about approaching historical trans figures was everything I wanted and more, more of this kind of content, please. So thank you. That was very validating. That's very good. We weren't sure if two episodes about Pauli Murray was too many. Yeah, also putting like a, just a lengthy kind of theoretical discussion with no storytelling at the end of like two hours of content it's kind of like people are just gonna turn this off all right i want to read your thesis i want to read your phd are thesis. you talking about my phd thesis yeah. that doesn't exist yet yeah i see uh if you want to read my phd thesis send us a one-time donation at... <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. we have now read out all reviews from iTunes and things uh, on here. So review us. And we'll, we'll, review wanna, we'll be back on the 8th of June with a mini episode about the Dutch World War II resistance fighter Willem Arondes. And we'll be back with our next long episode on the 15th of June when Irene will be talking to us about the Russian poet Sophia Park. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.